0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today we're talking with Dr. Jodi Rios about her book, Black Lives and Spatial Matters, Policing Blackness and Practicing Freedom in Suburban St. Louis, published by Cornell University Press. Dr. Rios, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, um, which examines the relationships between space, politics, and race in the suburbs of St. Louis. And so I just wanted to begin with you um, introducing yourself to us and telling us about yourself and how you came to write this book. Sure. So I was
1: originally trained as an architect, and I taught architecture and urban design at Washington University in St. Louis from 1996 to 2010. And it was during that time that I began working with communities in the area known as North St. Louis County. And the university um, had been asked to help with the design of a few playgrounds and pocket parks by some of the elected officials in some of the cities there. So I was initially um, just responding to those requests And as my students and I began talking with residents, it became clear pretty quickly that the priorities and concerns of the residents and the priorities and concerns of elected officials were very often not on the same page. The residents who are black were telling us stories of unimaginable harassment and policing that had been going on for years. And this had led to devastating debt owed to the cities as well as jail time for many of the residents. The leaders who are also black were telling us that folks from the city don't know how to act in the suburbs and that they were merely teaching people how to behave and how to take care of their property. So the research that became the basis for this book basically began with a very un like question, which was, what the hell is going on in North St. Louis County? And from about 2003 to 2010, most of my seminars, design studios that I was teaching, and my funded research focused on various aspects of that question. But I definitely didn't imagine that I would eventually change my focus, um, the focus of my work entirely. By 2010, however, I realized I needed to expand my knowledge beyond design in order to more fully study what was actually going on in the area, and so I entered a PhD program at UC Berkeley. Um, I finished the PhD in 2016 and this book is an improved version hopefully of the dissertation although I I don't think the press likes me to say that.
2: That's so interesting. Um, And so, and so in talking about about your background, um, the book is quite interdisciplinary and it draws from history, ethnography, political science, geography, also I guess architecture and the built environment Um, and to examine how spatial politics of race play out in suburban uh, North St. Louis County in Missouri, as you just explained. Um, And so at the beginning of the book, you mentioned undergoing a process of undisciplining during the researching and writing of the book. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that process. Yeah, I, I think that most people who actively
1: do interdisciplinary research do so with at least one foot in a disciplinary home or they're um, they're part of a field that's inherently interdisciplinary, like ethnic studies. But in in terms of my doctoral work, the interdisciplinary PhD at um, UC Berkeley is specifically designed for people whose work doesn't fit into any disciplinary home. And I actually had to write um, about a 40-page argument regarding why I couldn't do the research in any any one department at UC Berkeley. So there's not many people who do that PhD. And I think, I guess you could say it's um, a PhD for um, kind of disciplinary misfits. But my diploma says I have a a doctorate in visual and narrative culture within that um, interdisciplinary program. Um, And although I don't have a disciplinary home per se, My methodology is very much rooted in design thinking because it's just normally how I approach problems and questions after um, being in architecture for so long. And the thing about design thinking is it involves constantly expanding rather than narrowing the field of inquiry. So a design thinking approach is always trying to find new relationships between different kinds of information. So in order to study the relationships between the different phenomena that I was seeing in North St. Louis County, um, I knew I needed multiple disciplinary perspectives, but I was very conscious of resisting any one set of disciplinary norms, which you know, are essentially the boundaries that get policed within each discipline. And that unboundedness is how I understand the undisciplining part of the research, um, which can be frustrating for a press and even for a reader, since my work isn't entirely legible to any one field. But I'm really grateful to the people at Cornell University Press and um, specifically the Police World Series, um, because they allowed me the freedom to really explore how an undisciplining approach um, to research and scholarship could ex- hopefully expand the scope and um, also hopefully the reach of the project. Um, I, I think some people may say I've muddied the water too much, but I, I think it also reflects sorry reflects the practices of freedom that I write about in part two of the book, which are very much about resisting boundaries and norms. Although the, the stakes are far much lower for me than they are for the people I write about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, whenever I think about black studies, I think about interdisciplinarity and, you know, whenever you're working with, um, working sort of, you know, adjacent to that kind of topic, um, it makes always, it always makes me think about bringing in multiple disciplines to be able to answer the question. And so I think you did that um, really well in the book. And I think, um, and you have this idea of um, blackness as risk that really brings the book together. Um, and also then your idea of blackness as freedom, which we'll talk about later um, also uh, is then, you know, woven throughout the book. But um But with Blackness at Risk, one of the interventions of the book seems to be that race is made through space. And one of the ways that race is made through space is through this linkage between Blackness and risk. And one of the components is that seems to be from my reading is that when Black people occupy space, um, these ideas of Black deviance seem to devalue property and provoke white flight and disinvestment. And then like lower the revenue coming into the municipal governments. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us about this idea of, of blackness at risk um, that you theorize in the book. Um, yeah. Um, first, well,
1: so it sounds obvious, but the fact that physical bodies take up space and space is experienced through bodies, is very important um, to me for talking about the relationship between the production and experience of race and the production and experience of space. So phenomenologically, I understand whiteness as the ability to orient one's body toward a world that is likewise oriented around white bodies, which um, is also another way of thinking about anti-blackness. And in this sense, The white body is an invisible extension of the world, and white people are generally not faced with their whiteness. But following Franz Fanon, inhabiting a raced body in a world oriented around whiteness is to be turned back on oneself and viewed as an object that's always out of place. So it's this out-of-placeness and the ever-present consciousness of the body does so much of the work of anti-blackness both in and through space as far as the concept of blackness as risk um, which i used to frame part one of the book this basically describes the other side of whiteness as property that cheryl harris famously theorized in her essay by the same name whiteness as property as harris um, talked about it is that invisible yet protected orientation of the world around white bodies. And she painstakingly showed that not only are white bodies and white property protected by the law, so is the currency of whiteness itself. Um, so that's important for understanding black how I think about blackness as risk because it's the opposite of whiteness as property. Because not only are black people and black property not protected both are viewed as a direct and punishable threat to the protected privileges and advantages of whiteness so they it's kind of the two two sides of that same coin and in the book i described the double bind that black residents in north st louis county experience in that not only did their property lose its value and they are not protected they they also they're also made to monetarily pay for that loss through policing and punishment. And all of it resulted when they simply occupied space. And so I should also say relative to the work of space, spatial imaginaries and the codification of space are very powerful tools of anti-blackness. So just as an example, in the months before Michael Brown was murdered by Darren Wilson in Ferguson, I was following the state takeover of the Normandy School District, which is where Brown was a student. Of course, I didn't know who Michael Brown was at that time. Um, but at that time, the newspaper articles and public discussions consistently described the Normandy School District as an urban district with urban problems. And people in the outer suburbs were complaining that they didn't want urban kids to be reassigned to their schools. And <clears throat> so, since this area was developed as suburban space, the use of urban was clearly code for black since the space itself hadn't changed. But because it was coded as urban now, it was assumed that students who looked like Michael Brown belonged in a place where the schools were failing. But if, so if we fast forward a few months later, when people took to the streets to protest Michael Brown's death in August of 2014, the same area was suddenly described as a cluster of suburban neighborhoods where people who looked like Michael Brown were either coming from outside to create trouble or those who already lived there it was assumed had brought urban problems to this previously bucolic place. Um, So again the physical space never changed but the spatial imaginary literally changed overnight since in both cases the codification of space was doing so much work, um, and just to kind of um, how I frame this um, uh, specifically around um, of you know, the the tolerance um, and expectation of suffering. Um, one of the ways that I define white space is the intolerance of suffering, um, but not only is suffering tolerated in spaces that are coded as black suffering is absolutely expected in those spaces Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and that's that's so important and you talk about how um as going back like black municipalities have lower sources of revenue from which to draw from And um, in order to make up for the shortfall, Black people are then subject to what you call predatory policing in St. Louis and the northern suburbs. And you detail a series of ordinances that regulate behavior, and they're not necessarily for safety. And I was particularly surprised when I was reading the book and reading about these ordinances, um, because so you describe these occupancy ordinances that regulate who you can have in your own house or Ordinances to keep your grill in your backyard, and so I was wondering if you could talk about these ordinances um, in relationship to this predatory policing and the, I guess, the filling of municipal coffers.
1: Yeah, so this is what initially prompted me to do the research in the first place, um, and I, I just want to go um, touch on the history a little bit because mm-hmm. it's kind of important for contextualizing how these. Um, practices have have really evolved, but the so the synopsis that I present in the book begins with the fact that St. Louis has always had a propensity for political and physical fragmentation, and this goes all the way back to its history as a colony of France and then of Spain, and then of France again, and then finally as a U.S. territory. Um, so this resulted in a um, a geographic patchwork of different land claims, um, but it was also very much a place of um, contestation regarding what the laws were and who was considered to be free. Um, And so that um, fragmentation and the contestation um, continued and, and continues, but it's especially apparent in St. Louis County, where neighborhoods built for working and middle class white families who were encouraged to escape those so-called bills of urban life, i.e. black people, very quickly incorporated into um, these tiny little cities to avoid being annexed or mixed with adjacent neighborhoods. Um, And all of these neighborhoods were white, but there were various ways that people didn't want to be mixed. So at one point there were over a hundred, well, I think there were, it was right at 100 municipalities in the county and 50 of those occupied a 50 square mile area um, that is, is known as North St. Louis County. Uh, I think today there's 46 in a 50 square mile area. So these are, these are really tiny um, cities, some, some much smaller than others, but the vast number of municipalities has created a fierce, Competition for commercial districts and tax revenue, um, and it it also, you know, creates um, an extensive number of services and, of course, police departments and municipal courts. So after the fair housing legislation was passed in the late 1960s, and middle class black families began to move in, many cities in this area experienced that, you know, familiar pattern that we see things like blockbusting, real estate steering, redlining, um, discriminatory lending, disinvestment, and of course, white flight. Um, So right very quickly during that time, um, houses were flipped, um, properties were neglected by absentee landlords, uh, the schools were hollowed out, and most of the businesses followed white families to that next ring of suburban development. And this left the newly elected, um, at that time, it, There, were, some cities had, um, were, the elected leadership was transitioning very quickly and some um, as early as the late 1970s, some cities had all black leadership. Um, but it left these leaders basically holding the bill, for municipal services that they had no way of generating the revenue that they needed to keep things afloat, um, and I just want to point out that um, policing for revenue practices was was not new to this area. Um, it had already it was kind of already in place and um, was. Definitely a, a small source of revenue in these cities, um, you know, almost immediately after they became incorporated. But at this time, these ordinances became specifically targeted toward lower-income Black residents. Plus, the desire to maintain Black municipal autonomy um, also fueled the predatory policing, since Black Black leaders, who um, I should also mention, were mostly Black women, had Really fought long and hard to get to where they were. So, you know, we see a lot of the ordinances, like you mentioned Um, things like no barbecuing on your porch, no basketball hoops in your driveway, no mismatched curtains in your windows, and even um, no sagging pants and no loud bass music. Um, Michael Brown was initially stopped for something called manner of walking. Which is very common. I couldn't believe it when I first heard that. I didn't even know what it meant. But, um, you know, long before um, he was murdered by Darren Wilson, but it's commonly enforced across this geography. And ironically, you can be stopped for not walking on a sidewalk on a street that has no sidewalks. So suffice it to say that all of the seemingly unbelievable stories that were initially shared by residents
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: And then, um, so people would, would might attribute this problem of predatory policing to white leadership, um, but you diagnose the problem as emerging from a more complex set of circumstances that involve your ideas of blackness as risk, as well as historical processes that generate such conditions um, that municipalities must rely on these kind of ordinances for money. Um, And as you previously mentioned before, much of the leadership was also um, Black women. And so can you talk about how you see the problem of predatory policing and its causes? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, before 2014, nobody really talked about predatory policing in St. Louis. And people outside of St. Louis certainly didn't know what was going on. So when protests brought worldwide attention to these practices, Ferguson, which has a completely different history than most of the cities in this area, was actually one of the few municipalities where all of the elected officials were still white. And because of that, many people assumed that the predatory policing in Ferguson, um, which protesters and later the DOJ revealed, was d- um, people thought it was due to this mismatch between the leadership and the majority Black population but what I knew at the time was that predatory policing was much more prevalent in the surrounding communities that had all black leadership. Um, and it had everything to do with the percentage of black residents and not the racial makeup of elected officials. And I mean, I, I talked about this a little bit before, but, um, it really is this double bind that both residents and leaders find themselves in um which is when when they move in the resources move out and so it's it's this kind of scramble for um how do you make that up and and basically it's the people themselves that are made to pay so i mean this was um this was a hard I don't know if you saw this, but um, especially in the, the chapter that I write on, a, on the place that I know best, which is Pagedale. It was it was very hard for me to kind of, um, you know, it's, it's easier. It would be easy to throw black leaders under the bus for, um, you know, preying on on their own residents. But what I found is that there's so much um, nuance Um in those historical forces that it's like you said, it's way, it's way more complicated, um,
2: than that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the first part of the book, um, talks about, uh, blackness as, as risk, which we've just, um, talked about a bit. And then the second part of the book, um, is called blackness is freedom. And, um, and, the, and those chapters in Blackness is Freedom are, ta- are talking about protest and resistance. Um, and so in the midst of your research and writing of the book, which you, you just mentioned, um, Michael Brown um, was murdered um, by a policeman in Ferguson, Missouri on August 9th, 2014. And uh, many listeners would know that his murder sparked a series of mass protests in the St. Louis area and beyond. And you have two chapters, um, you know, that focus on these protests. And you mentioned in the book that you were grappling with um, how to write about these protests um, and that you, that you don't, you know, speak for the protesters. Um, and so in the book, you include these direct quotations from the protesters um, with either their names or pseudonyms, and you set the quotes apart from the text. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that dilemma of representing protest and how you came to write the chapters in the way you did and what you hope to accomplish by, uh, by the structure. Yeah. Well,
1: the most evident way that leaders of Ferguson resistance were protesting was being unapologetically who they are. And I mean, they were done trying to appease anybody and they were done operating within any set of rules. And this was something I thought about a lot in terms of how I approached the book and especially how I approached that section, um, the two chapters um, that I call Blackness Freedom. And as much as I could, I wanted to be also unapologetically who I am and I wanted to be very transparent about it. So it was less about not wanting to speak for people and more about acknowledging whose story it really is. And I didn't think I should spend too much time explaining or summarizing what people meant. Um, I mean, obviously which voices I chose and which parts I included, and then how I organized all of those things in relationship to one another does carry a lot of narrative weight. And so I tried to think of myself as more of a curator. and. By this, I mean that curators have a lot of power when it comes to what an audience takes from a curated collection, but the individual works still stand very much on their own. So that was kind of what I envisioned doing in this um, more you know, textual way. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to Nadia Ellis who challenged me to first write the protest section as if it were a play. And that was really helpful as a way to maintain the integrity of the individual voices. And that's really what I wanted to accomplish in how I structured those last two chapters was trying to really maintain, maintain that integrity of the individual
2: voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you did, um, did just, just that um, by including all of their, their voices in the book and um, in the chapter on protests, you talk about blackness freedom, and you relate the protests um, to the spatial matters that the book focuses on. And there's this quote that begins chapter seven, um, where the protester mentions people coming out of their homes and standing in the streets. And I'll just I'll read a little part of the quote, uh, the beginning of chapter seven. And the person, Brittany Farrell, says, so it's confusing if you don't know the history of how this movement unfolded in Ferguson years from now when we're retelling the story of what's going to be called BLM. I want people to say, and then on August ninth, 2014, people came out of their houses in St. Louis and unyieldingly stood in the streets of Ferguson and they did not back down to the violence directed at them. And so that's part of the quote. And so I was wondering if you could describe um, your idea of Blackness as freedom and uh, the importance of occupying space in in these protests.
1: Yeah, I, I theorize Blackness as freedom as a way of being in the world. And it's a way of being that is very intentionally not oriented toward the world. And it also denies the subject-object dynamic that's created by anti-blackness, what I talked about earlier about being turned back on oneself. So it's absolutely a refusal to be for others. Um, So both this reorientation and the refusal are powerful forms of protest, but in terms of spatial matters, Ferguson protesters were and are very aware of how they use their out of placeness as a form of protest. And I relied a lot on Avery Gordon's theorization of haunting um, to think about out of placeness and the power of using out of placeness. And uh, in fact, the the way I use the term spatial matters is quite literally a nod to um, Avery Gordon's book, Ghostly Matters. But haunting is something that exposes the rigging behind the curtain. And it occurs when things that are supposed to be over and done with, things of the past, things that don't belong, suddenly show up and are very much in plain sight. Um, and the, the violence that was unleashed on Michael Brown's body, which was very much in plain sight for four and a half hours in the street, brought people out. Um, brought the out of people who's out of place bodies then occupied the street and they occupied the street night after night Um, and in this way um, it really seemed that they bore witness to the violence that was constantly being waged against them The the violence that you know I spend the the whole um, first part of the book which is much longer than than the second part but the violence that I explain over and over again, and um, kind of, um, it just seems like I I needed to put all of it in there to show just how unending the violence is, but it does become very tedious to read all of these people's accounts of what um, was going on in this geography, not to mention, you know, how that links people uh, through violence across space and time. Um, But it was also showing the violence that was being waged against them in real time. I mean, there was um, all kinds of ways that they were putting um, their bodies in harm's way. So like ghosts, the appearance of -of out-of-place people who won't go away not only haunts the perpetrators of violence and those who say that the violence doesn't exist um, or it doesn't exist anymore, um, but it it also does reveal the rigging of a of a system that has complete disregard for Black life, um, and I, I think it really um, one of the things that Brittany was talking about is just how they appeared night after night, and they um, they didn't back down, and you know they they just were done. Um, with you know following the rules of protest or um, you know the rules of negotiation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was so powerful um, to read to read those accounts, especially as you just said when you talk about the violence and and in discussing in the first part um, how people in a way were afraid to leave their homes. Um, they were constantly being pulled over and, um, even, you know, policed in their homes. And then, so to hear her say, we came out into the street, you realize how powerful that is, particularly within that context where they're constantly, um, sort of confined. Um, so that was, that was really great. And so, um, and so in the research, uh, you, you, you know, you focus of course on suburban St. Louis, Um, but I was wondering about what you thought about its larger implications and particularly, do you think that it helps us understand these recent protests that we saw regarding George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, which are ongoing, but, you know, we saw the really, uh, over the summer, uh, take off.
1: Yeah. Well, since I focused on this area for so long, I'm, I'm sure I'm very biased, um, but I absolutely believe that were it not for the work of people who stood up in Ferguson and who showed up night after night, who didn't back down, um, and who really kind of changed, um, at least in my view, um, some of the terms of protest. Uh, and it wasn't just in 2014. It continued into 2015. And even though you know we don't see St. Louis in the news that much, I, I definitely follow what's going on there. and um you know the protests haven't stopped they just don't um garner national attention most of the time but i i really think that we would not see the collective momentum of you know what we now call and consider the the black lives matter movement obviously so many things have gone into building a recognizable movement but i really argue alongside those I interviewed because um, I know that they definitely believe this um, as well. Um, But those I interviewed and was in the street with that the Ferguson protest movement, what we've come to consider the Ferguson protest movement was absolutely critical to that formation. And I I do think that a shift occurred um, that I can't quite articulate but it definitely involves no longer playing by the rules. And it involves exposing that totality of violence that is anti-blackness.
2: And so I wanted to um, ask you a question about the gathering of the, the data, the research process for the book. And as we already discussed, it is, it is very interdisciplinary. And so, Um, So you include, it seems like historical research, ethnography, interviews, and and you already mentioned community service projects done with students. So I was wondering if you could talk about this gathering the data for the for the research and any of the maybe challenges or opportunities that you encountered while doing this research. Yeah, I mean,
1: the biggest challenge was that it was over um, a quarter. course of 15 years so and i didn't even know i was working on this project in the beginning even though you know i was gathering um data at that time um whether it was you know to write something kind of specifically addressing a few of the things i um, was witnessing or um i also worked for several years on a um a health Uh, it's called a health impact assessment where we were really looking at a lot of the structural um, things that were going on and trying to make recommendations for changes in both um, environmental and physical um, aspects of this area. And, um, but as well as policy. Um, So there was a lot of, you know, we talked to a lot of people, um, for that research. We did a lot of interviews um, focusing kind of on, on that piece. Um, and then so I, I knew when I went entered the doctoral program that I wanted to really bring all of these pieces together. So I had all of these little fragments of, of data and I also had done some archival research um, by that point, but not terribly, Um, rigorously. So really, um, the doctoral program was an excuse. I mean, it obviously um, benefited me a lot in terms of, you know, just my knowledge and my thinking, how I think about the world. But, um, you know, it's very hard to rigorously bring things together when you're trying to work a full-time job and, you know, do all these other things. So it was was creating a space to bring all of those pieces together, and then to try to fill in the gaps. So, you know, I spent um, from 2010 until 2014 basically filling all the gaps in um, that became basically what what reads as part one of the book now. And I thought that that was it. I mean, um, and I, I mentioned this in the introduction, but I had just started writing the dissertation um, at the beginning of, um, well, I was, I was supposed to be formally beginning in that fall of 2014. And so, of course, Michael Brown was murdered, as you said, on August 9th of 2014. So I, I was faced with this kind of dilemma. Um, all of this, well, for one thing, I could never explain to people where North St. Louis, anybody outside of St. Louis, where North St. Louis County was or why it was important or why, you know, people should pay attention to the things that were going on there. And then all of a sudden, everybody knew (laughs) where it was and knew, you know, some of the issues that were going on there. And so it was was a weird turnaround in kind of working on a very obscure topic to working on, you know, a very, um, known topic. Um, so, and, I, you know, a lot of people, including some of my own committee members basically told me, you know, I should, I should just write the dissertation, come back to all those things later. And it, you know, it it was all happening in real time. And I, I just, there was no way I could do that. So I, I did pause the writing, um, for a whole year and I spent most of that year in St. Louis. And um, I mean, I could also, I would not have been able to write that part. And I, I try to give as much credit as I can, um, were it not for um, the three Black women who were working with me to do a lot of the interviews. Um, because, you know, that's, that was a definite um, challenge. In even though, you know, I knew quite a few people in the area, I'd gotten to know people. There just, there was a certain um, point where I I couldn't access everybody, um, you know, for all kinds of um, reasons in terms of my own identity and um, as, you know, as an academic, as someone who's older, as someone who's white, um, so, You know, they really helped um, overcome that hurdle, Um, and also by just introducing me to people, because all three of them were actually, you know, involved very much in Ferguson resistance. So, you know, not only were they interviewing, they they were also, you know, contributing to that knowledge. so I don't know if that I was kind of rambling there. I don't know if that answers your question.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and so finally, I wanted to ask um, what you would want people to um, to ultimately take away from the book um, when they've after they've they've read it. Gosh, um,
1: well, I'm really interested to know what people. <laughs> Take away from the book because obviously, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I there are things that I want people to take away, but um, having r- written it um, from so many different vantage points in the different chapters, um, I I kind of suspect and I also kind of know having gone through the you know peer review process that different people are going to d- read it different ways. So, um, and that's really my hope is that there are pieces in there that people from their own subject position or their own disciplinary um, background might not normally um, really engage with. So, you know, I'm hoping that people won't just skip over the chapters that are maybe slightly less legible to them. Um, so that's one one aspect of it. I think that methodologically, it has something to contribute um, because it brings all of those things together. Um, I mean, I I really wanted um, I wanted people to know what was going on there, and I wanted to try to show that even if it's not as extreme, these very same things are going on around, around us in every place. And it was very hard. I ended up calling, you know, that last little final, you can't really call it a chapter. I called it a a coda um, because I I could never write a conclusion. Um, And, you know, the the series editors kept asking, you know, where's the conclusion? And I I finally just decided the way I, um, approach, I think it's, you know, like three or four pages is I talk about all of the things that people could look at in, in terms of like after 2014 and say, well, look what changed. Um, but there were all of these things that changed, um, initially in the first couple of years and then slowly, all of those things are evaporating. Um, You know, the laws that changed have been overridden. Um, The um, amount of revenue collected through fines and fees initially went down and now it's back up. Um, Various people who were elected um, or brought in who were thought to be like, oh, they're coming in on the heels of uh, Ferguson protests and they're going to change, you know, change things up. Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of elected officials who kind of came in that way have um, been disappointments to some of the people who are really doing the work on the ground. So, what I was, I think, what I was trying to do with that. Last chapter was to really show, and this is a, a huge part that I hope to touch on throughout the book is that you know, just thinking that we're going to change laws or um, make things more accessible to people or um, try to bring some kind of justice, um, you know, uh, whether it's justice for Mike Brown or you know, justice for the people who are living. Um, you know, with this just um, unimaginable everyday violence. I'm trying to show that to say that is actually violence itself, to say that all of those things are going to change something. We are committing violence when we are just saying, okay, we're going to change another law or we're going to put body cameras on police or we're, you know, and I think this is where, you know, the, the defund the police and abolish the police really starts to resonate, and and why it is getting traction on the heels of the kind of protests that was initiated um, by Ferguson protesters um, is that you actually you absolutely have to get rid of something in order to make a difference. You you can't you really can't think you're going to change it and um, within the way that our society is structured that ultimately you know you're gonna you're gonna change um something in such a way that you can say well yeah we've really made a difference and everybody's lives are are so much better
2: no absolutely and um and that those are some of the things that that i definitely took from the book it was a very rich and, you know, complex book. And I thought it was a, a a great example of how to bring together various disciplinary perspectives to make an argument. And then also it really spoke to what you just said, the importance of history and like the deep rootedness of history in, in understanding these kinds of social problems, um, and why they don't just go away, um, with changes of leadership or, or changes of law, as you just said, um, it was, it was very powerfully demonstrated in the book. Thanks. I I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And so, so now that the book is um, out into the, to the world um, to conclude, do you have any um, current projects on the horizon or um, future projects planned for um, either research or anything else?
1: Yeah, well, I,
2: I, I find it very difficult to look away from,
1: you know, this area that I've spent 20 years um, so focused on. And so, um, you know, I think that all of my research in the future um, will continue to really have some, um, uh, some direct reference point to what's going on in um, St. Louis and also specifically North St. Louis County. So. Um, One thing I'm doing right now is just revisiting a lot of um, the statistical data that a little bit I just talked about to to know um, more certainly um, what has or hasn't happened in the last six years, because, you know, a lot of people will say what has um, what has happened or what hasn't happened. But I I don't know that um, it's all very quantified right now to to know for sure so that's kind of what i'm doing right now is just revisiting um, some of the data in the book Um, and then another piece that i became really interested in while writing the book and really didn't have time to delve into um, and i talk about it a little bit um, especially again in the the chapter on pagedell was really the experience of these black women who came into leadership at that time. And, you know, like I said before, it's, it's easy to throw leaders under the bus um, or to make excuses, but I I really want to understand that experience um, a little better because I feel like that was something that I understood from, you know, kind of on the surface and talking to people and in the present and what they said. But, There really is a lot of, um, there's a lot of information in in some of the archival data that I've discovered more recently to really, um, for for me at least, to better understand what that period of time was in those, you know, the early 70s through, you know, like the early 90s when, um, you know, first the... um, you know the actual demographics were changing, but then there was so much um, just tension as as the leadership changed. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm doing right now is trying to understand that better.
2: Mm-hmm. We, will, we will look forward to that. So I've been speaking with Dr. Jody Rios about her book "Black Lives and Spatial Matters: Policing Blackness and Practicing Freedom in Suburban St. Louis," published by Cornell University Press. Thank you, Dr. Rios, for writing this book and for sharing it with us at the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. With Lucky Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.